take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Downing Street is trying to shift the conversation onto, well, perhaps some more comfortable ground than education. It's the economy. Today, Boris Johnson is visiting a business to emphasise his message that economic confidence is rebuilding. Well, that's what the government wants to talk about. What everyone else is on about is still schools as we head towards the English return, at least. Scotland already there. Northern Ireland, I think, heading soon, but don't quote me on that. Head teachers in England urging ministers to consider requiring older peoples to wear face masks. But the cabinet minister, Alex Sharma, doing the broadcast run this morning, saying that the risks are very low. In June, we had, on average, around a million children in uh, uh, preschool and primary settings, uh, and there were 70 uh, incidents of infection. So the chances of being infected in school are incredibly low. In fact, uh, the chances of, of being infected are higher outside a school setting. Well, meanwhile, BTEC students are getting their results, finally, from today. Those doing the technical qualifications saw their grade reviews to keep them in line with A-levels and GCSEs. Now, half a million students have been reassessed following the government's decision to scrap a computer programme and go with teachers' predictions instead. So I think it's not unfair to say it's all been a bit of a mess, and there's an even bigger challenge coming, of course, which is getting the schools back to work. Well, joining us now is Lloyd Russell-Moyle, Labour MP for Brighton. Brighton, Kemp Town. Lloyd, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for doing us, uh, this today. I, I suppose the the question is, can they do it? Can they get the children back to school? It does seem now the local authorities, teaching unions, pretty much falling into line. So it's going to happen, isn't it? Well, I think everyone wants children to go back. And actually, I think a lot of children um, uh, and students want to go back themselves, actually. Uh, of course, there are issues about one, how we make the current arrangements safe enough for everyone to go back. And it is an interesting diversion that we've got between Scotland and England. I, I don't think there's much evidence that the virus is different across Hadrian's Wall, or not quite the border, but the, uh, the metaphorical border. Um, and uh, there's not much evidence that, you know, kind of two countries live in very different ways. I mean, there's some argument that in different climates, and in different social settings, you maybe can do different things. So it's strange that we've got a divergence there for over 12-year-olds, you know, so, so the older students. Um, and and I'm, I'm surprised the government is, is digging their heels in a bit on this and saying there will be no review, rather than what the teachers and hedge unions are asking for, which is for it to be um, remain an open question to see how things go and have it as one of the options. But I think that everyone is committed to getting children back at school. Um, there will need to be some changes of the way things happen. But that is in current conditions. You know, we've got a storm, as uh, I'm down in Brighton, and a, a storm Francis, I think it is, has hit us today, which it feels like we're back into winter. And we know in winter there is a likelihood that the virus will spike again. Um, and so things, particularly local lockdowns, will start to play a factor in this. 
Well, what about this issue of diversion between uh, England and Scotland? One of the issues, of course, is around wearing masks, particularly among older pupils, where there's some evidence that perhaps they are more infectious than a younger child. Uh, Where do you stand on that older people should wear masks in England? Well, my my view is that, of course, we can't... The aim of none of this is to stop transmissions completely because there are some places eating food and drinking, for example, is a good example, where you just can't wear a mask. The point is to reduce the number of moments where an infection can happen. And so you reduce the uh, ability for the virus to spread as easily and therefore reduce the R rate. And so you want to surely have as many moments where it's practically possible and it's comfortable to have to wear them. And there was some talk about making people wear it just in corridors and communal spaces. But once you got into the classroom, and the classroom would have been set up in a safe enough kind of way, and that is kind of bubble because you know who is in that classroom and you can isolate that class, class more easily, uh, that you would, you would be able to take the mask off. Those things seem sensible to me. The government has been... I, I mean, I hate masks, personally. I hate wearing a mask. But uh, the evidence on masks has been very clear from very early on. There was a Health and Safety England uh, study, which is the the body that's meant to regulate the workplace health and safety, study uh, uh, eight years ago now, uh, which was about flu or other similar viruses, and it said that masks help prevent um, uh, all those respiratory uh, um, uh, viruses passing on considerably, even just a, a fabric mask. The government refused to kind of listen to any of that stuff until months afterwards and was very slow in adopting masks because I think there's a kind of personal and possibly political kind of uh, um, unpleasantness about uh, about enforcing those things on people. And as I say, I don't like it, but, but, but I think the science has been very clear for a very long time and but, I suspect the government will probably end up having to get to the same place as Scotland. But Lloyd, the problem surely in all this is schools are not just like the rest of the, uh, rest of the country. Schools involve children, students, who may not be that cooperative, who may not be that organised. I mean, the chances of this actually working realistically is nil. Well, I think that that's... um, uh, We're talking about older children, so we're not talking about toddlers to start with. So we are talking about people who are reasoned, and in law, actually, you know, kind of 13 and 14-year-olds are legally responsible. Yeah, but Lloyd, have you you met any teenagers recently? They don't necessarily do what they're told. Well, actually, most teenagers do do what they're told. I think this is totally uh, unfair to say that. But there are some that don't. And the Scottish rules that I was reading earlier on say that we should avoid expulsion or exclusion for children that refuse, but that you would use other kind of forms of, um, uh, of, 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 of discipline. There are lots of ways schools enforce this. I mean, schools generally are able to enforce uniforms. Most children wear uniforms and most children comply with uniforms. I think most uniforms are uh, are pathetic kind of items, you know, ties and skirts of certain lengths is ridiculous because in the workplace you don't have that kind of uniform and it's never reflective of any kind of workplace that I've worked in. It's so so strict. But... um, uh, even when I worked in kind of Tesco's, yeah, the uniform wasn't as strict as a school uniform. But most kids abide by that, and they follow that rule. So this I can't see as being so different. I think if you ask them to wear it all the 
time in the canteen and in the classroom. That is very difficult. But my understanding is the rules are about when children are travelling in the corridors, etc. Now, some will disobey, but let's see how it goes. I think that there is a lot of goodwill uh, um, uh, among people. One issue around this is that the rules have to be so, so granular and schools are different. They have different setups. They have different even widths of corridors, to use that example. Is yeah. it not better on some of these issues just to defer to the schools, let them do what is best for their children? Yes, well, that I think has been the general government policy to try and in the UK to try and defer to other people. So we don't have to make the difficult choice. And so we're not to blame when it goes wrong. I think what you need to do if you're a responsible government is you need to give guidelines backed with some framework of rules. And then, of course, there is a margin of appreciation, which is the phrase that's often used in kind of international human rights law kind of stuff, a margin of appreciation to allow schools to, of course, adapt those rules in different contexts. And so it might well be that some schools need to have masks in more, more areas than others. But we, we do that already with, um, with, with shops and restaurants, uh, etc., where, of course, there is some understanding um, that we all need to wear masks now in shops, but some people have exemptions. We do that at the moment already, where there is, of course, an understanding that if you are buying a takeaway, you are meant to be wearing a mask, but if you're sitting down and eating, you don't have to. And, of course, there is a margin of appreciation uh, within well, that. You don't suddenly shout at someone as soon as they walk into the restaurant. You you work with people, and each restaurant is allowed to police that themselves. And I think that's the right approach, and that's how it should happen with schools as well. But well, the government does have to lay down a framework. Otherwise, schools will, are working against nothing. Lloyd, let me ask you, I mean, you're one of a number of MPs, I think, perhaps not that many, who have themselves had um, the COVID virus, have suffered mm-hmm. from it. And uh, it's in the public domain that you, you are HIV positive, have been in the past, potentially, therefore, I guess, at more risk than some. How are you feeling? How is your physical health? Because we're hearing a lot now about the longer term implications of people who've had this. Well, my one never knows. I personally had two weeks of a horrible flu that wasn't quite as bad as when I had pneumonia a few years ago, but wasn't, uh, but was probably worse than most flus, if that makes sense, um, somewhere in that kind of region. And I recovered pretty fully after it. Um, I have noticed on and off issues with the you know, taste just being slightly different. But apart from that, I wouldn't say that there's much uh, difference. So I've not had this long COVID that people talk about in terms of exhaustion and everything. But equally, um, some of the things that uh, they're talking about is just the increased rates of heart attack, organs are struggling, and some of those things you don't notice until it kind of goes wrong. So I'm um, touch wood, <laughs> um, I have kind of been okay. But I think what's strange about this disease is it kind of affects everyone slightly differently. And if you have certain underlying weaknesses, it kind of goes for some of those underlying weaknesses. And that's what we don't know. And there's also some evidence that I've read coming out of Italy that some of the disease might even be adapting to become less deadly. You know, viruses um, tend to prefer not to... It advantages you if you don't totally kill your host because you can survive longer in, in that host, if that makes sense, if you're a pathogen. And so there's some uh, evidence that it might well be adapting so it's less deadly, but it might well cause more long-term issues. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it, 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 it's still, uh, uh, from a personal level, I've not been particularly badly affected in the long term as far as I can tell. But there is an interesting kind of trajectory here about is it less right. deadly but has more long-term consequences. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. We start with the exams fiasco because the former education secretary saying that the government U-turn over exams could be Boris Johnson's Black Wednesday moment. Famously, not a good period for John Major and very much spelt the, the end of his premiership or the beginning of the end, rather. The person in question is Justine Greening. She was, of course, education secretary for a couple of years under Theresa May, writing in The Guardian today that the whole debacle could fatally undermine Boris Johnson's claim to be a champion of levelling up. She added that more has to be done to ensure young people aren't failed again by the government. Remember that Justine Greening was one of the MPs who had the whip removed, the Conservative whip removed for voting against a no-deal Brexit, and she subsequently did not run again in the 2019 election. Yes, yeah, so she has no great love, I think, for Boris Johnson. But it's an interesting point. Various people have drawn uh, attention to this. Someone saying that it uh, could even be a sort of poll tax moment, uh, perhaps uh, alluding to what happened, of course, with Margaret Thatcher. We'll see where that goes. Meanwhile, deforestation and the green agenda are looming large because UK businesses could be banned from using products grown on land that was deforested illegally under a new law being proposed by the government. The legislation will be introduced to clamp down on illegal deforestation and to protect rainforests by cleaning up the UK's supply chains. The due diligence requires businesses to publish information that shows where key commodities came from and what they were produced in line with local laws. Firms would face fines if they failed to comply. Mm, yeah, so clamp down on uh, environmental issues there. And then Jeremy Corbyn said to be posing a threat of sorts, I suppose, to Keir Starmer's Labour Party. He's supporting uh, a different candidate for the new head of Unison. He's backed Roger McKenzie to be the new head of the union, which is the biggest in Britain. Uh, this is according to The Times, and it threatens to weaken Starmer's hold on the party by moving the union to the left and potentially creating more infighting within Labour. That said, though, McKenzie told The Times that he would form a new relationship with Labour, calling for action on the plight of key workers. So another question for Starmer as he tries to remodel the party, perhaps move it in a slightly different direction to where it was under his predecessor. And of course, it all comes back to culture in the end. The proms, the BBC has defied the government by announcing that Rule Britannia will not be sung at the last night of the proms, according to the Telegraph. Some members of the public have expressed concern the song was racist propaganda before the BBC last night said new orchestral versions of the hugely popular anthems would feature in the finale of its concert next month. The Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, says he raised the concerns of the BBC, while Number 10 added the PM believes in tackling substance, not symbols. Yeah, but the problem is, of course, no stranger to politics. It's been uh, a common one to wave an EU flag on the last night for the last few years. Daniel Barenboim, the conductor, a few years ago, making a big speech about unity and the dangers of nationalism. Uh, but of course, now just the battleground for this ongoing culture war that certain people seem to be quite happy to stoke, I suppose. I suppose. Well, one of the big issues of the moment, of course, 
is masks and the extent to which they should be worn in schools. We were talking about that earlier in the programme. But it does now seem that after an awful lot of reluctance, masks are pretty much de rigueur, indeed legally required, of course, in many contexts now in Britain, north and south of the border. But how are they affecting our behaviour? Well, Daniel Reed is Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School and joins us now on the line. Now, Daniel, thanks very much for being with us. Welcome to the programme. You've done a study about the impact of masks. Now, the, the really interesting thing is your team found wearing face masks actually adversely affects attitudes towards social distancing. Can you just explain that for us? Well, what we found is not so much that people um, dislike social distancing, but that they were willing to get closer to one another if they wore a mask. So what we did is a study in which we presented people with situations in which they were wearing a mask and, and around a stranger or the stranger was wearing a mask or both of them were wearing a mask. And what we found is that the number of masks decreased of um, social distancing. So if there was one mask, you were wearing one, say, you were willing to get closer. If the other person was wearing one, um, um, you were willing to get closer. And if both people were wearing the mask, you were willing to get closer yet. So that suggests that, um, and with all interventions, almost anything you do, it doesn't just change the one thing, it changes everything else. In this case, wearing a mask um, doesn't just change what people are wearing, it changes other behaviors, um, and social distancing is one of them. So, so there's an argument here, Daniel, that masks are lulling people into a false sense of security, because as we know, they're designed to stop uh, particles from people's mouth and nose traveling through the air. But uh, the uh, sort of corona, uh, smaller particles can travel through these masks. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it's conceivable that that, that, is, that is the case or that wearing a mask could, in sort of a worst case scenario, increase. Um, the possibility of infection under some circumstances. Now, I'm not really qualified to, um, uh, you know, to judge whether that's true or not. But I, um, on the Guardian today, on the front page, there's a picture of two students who are kind of hugging one another, holding their faces together, both wearing masks. And I thought, well, you know, that's probably um, not the best thing to do if you're if you're concerned about um, um, the possibility of infection. So. I think you have to look carefully at not just whether masks prevent in some way the spread of, of the disease um, if our behavior is unchanged, but the total effect of the behavior change that the mask will bring as well as the effect of the mask. So, Daniel, I suppose... What we're talking about in this is, uh, I think, what's called risk compensation, isn't it? That you, you sort of balance yes. two risks effectively, um, but really without the understanding of the mechanism which would make that absurd. Um, yes, risk compensation is something like you get really good brakes on your car, so you drive closer to the cars behind you because you know you can stop more easily. You know, and that you know, could ultimately either leave your risk unchanged or increase the amount of risk um, that, that, that you actually are experiencing or presenting to others. Yeah, so if people don't so know... The, oh, go ahead. No, 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 sorry, please continue. No, I was just going to say that if people don't know, um, you, you know, people are not necessarily able to do a proper balancing of the risks of getting closer against the benefits from wearing a mask, and they may end up potentially increasing the risk that they experience um, wearing a mask simply because 
they are, um, you know, they, they've done the sort of some sort of calculations wrong. You know, I don't want to say that that's necessarily true, and, and, and at the same time, we have to realize that being able to go out in society and interact with other people is a good thing as well. So if math makes you more willing to do that, that's a plus on the side of math. Well, I mean, one time when we're less encouraged to go out to society and see people is if there is another lockdown, whether it is local or national. Are, is there a risk then that people are less likely to follow that guidance if they feel safe with these masks that, as, as we've established, may not necessarily be a catch-all? Uh, it, that's potentially true. I, mean, I think it would be a bit much to take um, our research and say for sure that would happen. But it's something that needs to be thought about. And you know, the situation always has to be monitored carefully. If we find, for instance, that people feel completely liberated by masks and are going out and doing you know, wild things, perhaps wearing masks for long periods of time, well past their, um, you know, the, the, the use, their useful period, or um, spending much more time in closed spaces um, just simply they're wearing masks, then we would have to um, potentially intervene, perhaps with messaging, or perhaps the changes in rules. So there is a risk, but, um, but I don't think that this is guaranteed to happen and we need to just monitor the situation. Da- Daniel, uh, how do you feel when you wear a mask? I'm just interested, does it, do, you, do you sort of feel that it changes your outlook or not? Yes, I do. In fact, this is quite interesting um, because I have been trying to kind of observe my feelings. Um, and, and what I found is that um, sort of early days when masks were not being used very much, I would be very, you know, if I saw someone wearing a mask and I wasn't wearing one, say I, I went outside um, um, uh, for a walk, someone was wearing a mask, I would give them a wide berth. I, I would want to stay away from them. But now I found that if, if I wear a mask or if others are wearing a mask, I do feel more comfortable. So perhaps if I go to my local grocery store, I have to buy you know, groceries. I'm in there, I'm wearing a mask, and most people are. And there'll be someone there not wearing a mask, and I really want to stay clear of that person. And so I'm surprised that actually my actions, my response to masks has changed. And the reason is because when masks were very rare, then I would look at someone wearing a mask, and, and they would remind me of the risk. I would feel perhaps even a bit of suspicion, or I think that they want me to stay clear of them because they're wearing a mask. And now when I see someone not wearing a mask, I feel like, oh, this person is really a risk taker. You know, who knows where they've been? I want to stay away from them. Someone, on the other hand, wearing a mask, I think, oh, here's a, ca- a cautious person, and I can feel more confident and safe around them. So my, act, my responses to masks have reversed over the course of the pandemic, you know, which is something I found um, you know, quite intriguing. And I think perhaps that our study represents that sort of latter stage, the stage where people are looking at others wearing masks, they're thinking that, you know, masks are, you know, that the person who's wearing the mask is taking precautions, not just the mask, but perhaps taking other precautions, and so we can get closer to them. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.